When we left off at the end of the last session, we were asking the question, why did God become human? That's what Peter recognized as he sat across what I imagine to be a campfire that night. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter, after a long silence, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what he was saying there was, I'm, I'm getting it, right? I'm getting it. I'm getting that, that Jesus has a rightful claim to the throne. He's the king, but he's not just a king. He's God who has come to be king. Why did that happen? Well, the reason that it happened, just in, a, just in a short sentence, is because we as human beings needed God to come and be our king. Well, why? Why, why, do, you, why do you need God to come and be our, our king? Well, the reason is because in the Old Testament times, in, in ancient Israel, kings had a particular role. They had a particular job that they were supposed to do. And that was to fight the battles of the nation for the people. That's what they were meant to do. They were meant to go out in battle and they were meant to, to fight against the, the enemies of the, of the nation and they were, to, they were to fight the battles of the people of God. So if you ever heard the story, for example, of David and Goliath, that's not just a story of little David beating giant Goliath. That's actually a story showing you why David is going to be such a great king. It's because Goliath comes out of the, you know, the Philistines' camp, and he makes fun of the people of Israel. And he says, none of you are willing to fight me. You know, I'm nine feet tall, and you're all like five feet tall, and, and none of you are willing to fight me. And little David, who at the time is about 14 years old, like you guys, right? He's like your age. He says, look, I'll go out and fight you. And I'll stand in, in the place of the people of, of God and of the people of Israel, and, and I'll fight, and God will fight for me. And what that story is doing is not just showing, you know, that you can overcome the big giants in your life and all the rest. It's saying this little guy, David, is the kind of guy that God wants to be king because he fights the people's battles. Well, if that's the case, then that's why God became a human being and became king. He came to fight a battle that you and I had already lost, that we couldn't fight for ourselves, that we couldn't win for ourselves, and that God, therefore, was going to come and fight for us. So uh, that's why uh, there's this one particular day where uh, John the Baptist, who was a, an Old Testament prophet, essentially, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's out teaching the, the people and telling them to get ready because the king is about to be here, the king's about to come, and all of a sudden he looks up over the, the hill and he sees this one particular man, it's Jesus, coming over the hill, and John the Baptist stops what he's doing, he stops preaching, and he points at Jesus and he says, behold, this is the man that I was telling you about. When I've been preaching that the king is coming, this is the guy I was telling you about. This is the king. I'm not even worthy to, to, to tie the, the shoelaces of his sandals. I, you know, I may be a, an important guy in, in God's, God's way of doing things and in God's plan, but he's far more important than me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes because, because he's the king. And so Jesus comes down the mountain and he, he talks to John for a minute and says, you, you, need, to, you need to baptize me. And so John argues with him a little bit and says, no, Jesus, you're the king. I need to be baptized by, by you. But, and Jesus says, no, I, I want you to baptize me. And so John finally says, okay. He, he baptizes him and he, he pulls him up out of the water. And you know what happens then? Well, the Bible says that, that the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus, which is a, a highly significant thing that we don't have time to talk about right now. Dove comes out of heaven, lands on Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And then a voice comes out of heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, without getting into too much detail, what that voice is saying is that this man is, is king. That's what, that's what being the son of God means, is that you're, you're the king. And so basically what God is doing is putting the crown of, 
of Israel and humanity on Jesus' head at that moment. And then what happens? I mean, like, without, without any delay whatsoever, what happens? Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's the thing that happens right after the crown goes on Jesus' head, so to speak. He's sent out into the wilderness to face Satan. Now, why is that? Well, it's because a king comes to fight the battles of his people. And this king had come to fight the battles of his people that we had already lost against Satan. It's, it's as if you know, God, God crowns Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the king. And immediately, Jesus reaches down and sort of picks up the sword that you and I had lost in our battle against Satan, and he goes out into the wilderness to fight him. And, and what happens, of course? Well, Satan tempts him three times. He, he, he sort of shoots three arrows at Jesus, kind of, you know. Three weapons that he had that had beaten every other human being in all of history, and, and Jesus knocks them all away, right? And he defeats Satan where you and I and every other human being had, had failed. And then at the end of that story, when, when Jesus is, is tempted... The Bible says that Satan went away until he could find a more opportune time. You got to wonder what Satan was thinking there because, because he thought when he went out into the wilderness to meet Jesus who had just been crowned, you know, sort of king of humanity by God. This is, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he picks up the sword and he goes out. Satan knew who Jesus was. You know, he had figured out a long time ago, like Peter, that this guy was not just a king. He was God and Satan must have been salivating for the chance to get at God, who was now a human being. Now, can you imagine what he was thinking? He's thinking, oh, here we go. Here we go. I've been fighting against this God for thousands of years, fighting him, trying to take him down. But I can't get to him because he's God and he's on the throne in heaven. And so all I've been able to do is take shots at the human beings that God made in his own image. But now, now what's happened? The God from the throne of heaven has become one of these breakable, weak, pathetic human beings, and I'm going to take him out. He had a lot of confidence. He should have, because, because up until this point, the three arrows or weapons or temptations that he used against Jesus, those three weapons had been spectacularly successful against human beings so far. Do you remember what they were? I mean, first he tells, he tells Jesus, you know, here. Jesus, you must be hungry. It's been, it's been 40 days, you know, that you've been fasting and not eating uh, as you've been praying out here in the wilderness. You must be hungry. So take some of these stones and, and turn them into bread. And just eat. What's the big deal? See what he's doing there? He's saying, Jesus, I want you to, I want you to not trust in God to provide for you and to sustain your life. But I want you to distrust God and demand his provision now. Do it now. Don't wait on him. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue trusting my father. I'm going to continue trusting God to, to provide for me and to, to keep me alive. I'm not going to trust you, Satan. I'm not going to demand now what God has promised to give me later. Remember the second temptation? He takes him from the, from the floor of the desert up to the, to the top of the temple. Looks down to the bottom of it. I mean, it's like hundreds and hundreds of feet tall. But looks down to the, to the bottom and Satan says, you're the, you're the son of God, I know that. And God has promised in his word to take care of you. He's promised that, that he's not going to let his angels allow you to, to strike your foot even against a stone. So how much more will God 
keep you from falling if you jump off this temple. So, so go ahead, Jesus. Test God. He's, he's promised to take care of you. So, so jump off the temple and let's see if he really will. Distrust God. Put him to the test. Make sure he's faithful. But don't really believe him. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. I believe him. I believe his promises. And I don't need to test him. So Satan takes Jesus then up to this high, high mountain. Shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all of them. And he says, he says Jesus, there's a shortcut to all of this. I'll make, you, I'll make you king of all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. You won't have to go through the cross. You won't have to go through the pain. You won't have to go through death. You just bow down to your knees and worship me and I will give all of this to you. Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. Even though it's a shortcut, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to worship God and God alone. Now, now think, back of, about those, think back to those three temptations. Those were the temptations that had worked over and over and over again against human beings. In fact, if you think about it a little bit, there are probably temptations that have worked against you sometimes. Demanding things now, wanting things now that God has promised to you later. Anybody ever fallen into that temptation? Yeah, you have. Not believing God's promises to you, getting, getting for example, fearful about your life when, when God has promised that he's, he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. There's Romans 8, 28 to 30. But we distrust him. We don't believe his promises. And so we want to demand that, that he, he do, do something, God. Prove to me that you love me. How many times have you done that? I bet you have. That weapon's worked on you. What about taking shortcuts to get the things that you, that you want? I bet you fall into that temptation too. See, those three temptations, demand it now, distrust God, and take shortcuts to what you really want. Those temptations have worked on every single human being all the way through history. And Satan knew that they had worked. And so he says, all right, here we go. I'm going to take my three best weapons, the ones that have never failed to take out human beings, and I'm going to shoot them at this Jesus character. And he's going to fall too. Only this time, Jesus matches him step for step. And for the very first time, Satan gets defeated by a human being. He wins where all of us had lost. Now, it's even deeper than that because this battle between God and Satan had been going on for a really long time. So when Satan goes away to look for a more opportune time, you gotta, you got to think of him as kind of going away with his tail between his legs because the three weapons that he shot at Jesus have suddenly not worked anymore. They didn't work on Jesus, and so he's wondering now, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Because I used my three best weapons that have worked on every human being, and they didn't work on Jesus. Where do I go from here? And you got to wonder if he was thinking back to the days when the war against God was going a whole lot better. See, what happened 2,000 years prior to that, or even more like 4,000 years prior to that, is that Satan had declared war against God, and he decided also that he was going to make humans declare war against God too. That's what the book of Genesis tells us. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1, because I want to tell you this story about, about Satan declaring war on God and then trying to get human beings to declare war on God too. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. He creates all the things that are in the world. And then near the end of the chapter... Verse 27, God created humanity, humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we talked a little bit about the image 
in the last session. We said that what it means, essentially, is that God made us and he owns us and therefore we're accountable to him, right? But there's something else that that image means. Look at verse 28. This is what the image of God essentially means. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the ancient world, an image was a fairly well-known thing. And here's what it was. If you, were a, if you were a king in the ancient Near East and you went in and conquered a certain land, like you took over, a, took over a nation and took over a village or whatever, one of the first things that you would do is tell your general uh, to go out and find the highest point in the land, the place that everybody could see, and, and put on the top of that highest point of land what was called an image. And that image was essentially a statue of you, the king. Sometimes it was made out of stone, sometimes wood, sometimes gold or silver, Uh, There's a story about it in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where King Nebuchadnezzar makes a 90-foot-tall golden image of himself, right? That's what an image was. And what that image did is that every time the farmer then would go out into the field, you know, to plow or to to sow seed or whatever it was, he would look up to that highest point, you know, and, and he would see every time he looked up there and be reminded of the fact that this is Nebuchadnezzar's land. Right? This, this land is owned and, and ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. So when God says, I'm going to make Adam and Eve, I'm going to make you in my image, and I'm going to give you dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, all the rest, he was giving them a particular job to do. What he wanted them to do was have dominion, that is to rule over the, the cosmos, rule over the world, but to do it for the purpose of pointing out all the cosmos, to the fact that there was an even higher throne and an even higher king. That was their job. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, but do it as my image and remind the cosmos every time they see you that that I, God, am the high king. That's what they were supposed to do. But here's the thing about the rule that Adam and Eve were supposed to have. Theirs was not the highest rule, right? Right? Because if, if, as God's image, they're supposed to communicate to the world that, that he's the high king, that means there's a higher crown than theirs. There's a higher throne than theirs. You ever wonder why God put that tree in the middle of the garden and told Adam and Eve, look, you can eat from every other tree in the garden, but you can't eat from this one? You ever wonder why he put that there? I don't, I don't think it was a kind of test. I don't think that's what he was doing. I don't, I don't think that God was putting it there so that Adam and Eve would have a choice whether to follow him or not. I don't think that's what it was. I think that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was more like God's flag in the garden, right? So the king comes in, and, and he, he's got a land, and he'll, he'll put a flag in the ground, and it's got his royal standard on it. I think that's kind of what the tree was. It was a symbol of God's throne and God's crown. And so what that tree was doing every time Adam and Eve would walk past it is that they were being reminded that their authority and dominion over the earth was not the highest authority. There's another king that's higher than than me. And so God is reminding them by saying, don't eat the fruit of that tree. He's reminding them, your authority is not ultimate. Your crown is not the highest one. And so that's the point at which Satan decides to attack. The rest of the story, though, before we get there, let me show you something else that's interesting and important here. In Genesis chapter 2, you can see that uh, God creates First, the man. If you look at Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man that he had created, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's the job of a king. Work it, 
make it better, keep it. That means guard it. That's the work of a king. And the Lord God commanded the man and said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Right? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's flag. Your your authority, Adam, is not, not ultimate. And then look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. So I will make a helper fit for him. You, you wonder what sort of voice God said that in. You know, he looks at, looks at Adam and says, this is not good. This is not going to work out well. I got I to gotta make somebody for him that's going to that's gonna help him out. And, and you know the end of the story, right? What you're expecting is that immediately as soon as God says that, you're going to get the creation of, of Eve, the woman, right? That's kind of how our... That's kind of how the movie runs in our mind. God says it's not good for him to, to, have a, to be alone. I've got to make a helper for him. And then the woman shows up, right? But weirdly, there's this, there's this little children's story almost that happens now in between it all. Look at verse 19. It's very strange. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. What in the world is going on there? I mean, why, do you, why does the Bible include this cute little children's story of Adam naming the animals? I mean, it really is a kind of, a kind of weird thing, right? Adam's sitting next to a tree and God brings all the animals by, you know, and Adam's supposed to give them give names, right? So this little creature comes by and it's got the long snoot and it's down on these short little legs and Adam looks at it and he goes, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, aardvark, right? And so the aardvark, you know, carries on and then, and then something else comes by and he says, uh, I don't know, blue whale, right? I, I don't know what else to call that thing. I don't know how they got the blue whale up there, but somehow they did and blue whale goes by and then this little thing comes around, you know, and Adam says, mosquito, you know, and there it goes, spider, and horse, and, and, and it just goes on down through the alphabet. You know, finally you get to the last one, and this, this other horse comes up, but it's, it's got stripes now, and Adam says, Adam says, you know, uh, God, we've already done this one, that's a horse, and God says, no, 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 look at it, it's got stripes, that's a different animal, you know. And Adam says, yeah, you're getting creative here at the end. Like, okay, I don't know. What do you think? Zebra, right? And the zebra goes off, and, and that's it. Why is he doing that? Why is God having Adam name all these little animals? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. For one thing, if you look at, if you look at the sentence in verse 20, the very last sentence of verse 20, you can see why God was doing this little exercise with Adam. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So what God is trying to get through this guy's thick skull is that none of these animals that God has created in the entire world is going to work for him as a helper, right? So he's trying to get it through Adam's skull that none of this is going to work. You know, the aardvark comes by and Adam says, that's not going to work. I can't, this is not going to work to be my, my wife. No, the mosquito is not going to work. The blue whale is not going to work. The zebra as Awesome as it is, God, not going to work, right? And so that's when God puts Adam in his sleep and takes out a rib and creates this woman. And this is why Adam is so stinking excited when he wakes up in verse 23, right? Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She'll, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's, he's thrilled. He's just psyched because of this woman, because he's looked at every other animal in the world, and nothing's going to work, and now God brings him this, this, this woman who's now created in his image, just like Adam is created in his image, and this is going to work, Adam realizes. 
So he's super excited. That's one thing that's going on with the naming of the animals. The other thing that's going on, though, is actually that in naming the animals, Adam is exercising a kind of kingly authority over the animals. That's what he's doing. Because, because to name something is to, is to have authority over it, right? So, you know, I, when my children were born, my wife and I got to name our children. We didn't get an email from the government that said the name of your child shall be this. You know, that's not how it worked. My wife and I gave names to our children, and that was, that was an exercise of ownership and authority over those kids. You know, you shall be called Justin, and that, that is an exercise of my ownership and authority and care over you. Well, that's what Adam was doing with the animals. So when he, you know, when he said aardvark or whatever, you know, he, was, he was exercising care and ownership over that, that animal. You can see some of the same thing when, uh, when uh, God brings the woman to Adam, right? Verse 23, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So even there in Genesis 1, Adam is exercising some care and authority even over his wife. And he's going to name her again later on. He'd give her another name, Eve. But do you, see what's, do you see what God is doing here with all of this? What God is doing is that in his creation of the world, he's actually setting up a structure of authority, right? With, with this having authority over this, having authority over this, all the way up to the highest throne of all, and that's his own. Right? So, so, you know, Adam names the, the animals and exercises authority over them. And, and he, he even names his wife. And so there's some, there's some authority structure in that marriage. And then the two of them together are supposed to exercise dominion over the whole animal kingdom and the whole cosmos. And then they themselves have a ruler and a higher crown above them. And that is God himself. So you've got these, these sort of dominoes of authority all the way up to God's own high throne. And then in chapter 3, Satan comes. And what does he do? And he comes to Eve and says, Hey, Eve, you know that, you know that tree in the middle of the garden that, that's the symbol of God's royal crown that he, he told you not to, not to eat the fruit from? I think you should eat the fruit. Why? Because if you do, you'll be like God. Now, now what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means is that he wants Eve essentially to take the, you know, if you, if you change the tree into a flag, kind of think of it like that. What he wants Eve to do is cut the ropes on the flag and take it down. In other words, to declare war on God and independence from God and to say to him, you are not my king. I'm not happy with this situation of your flag flying over me. I'm not happy with the situation of my crown being secondary. So I'm declaring war on you. That's what he wants her to do. But why does Satan come to Eve instead of Adam? I mean, through the whole rest of the Bible, who's the guy that gets blamed for sinning in the Garden of Eden? Adam. Adam gets blamed for for the sin over and over again. It's not Eve's sin. It's Adam's sin over and over again. So why doesn't Satan just go to Adam to try to get this rebellion started? Why does he go to Eve first? Well, people have given a lot of dumb reasons for that through, through all the years. Some people have said, I think stupidly, that, well, the reason, the reason that Satan went to Eve is because he thought she would be more gullible, and therefore he thought he could get her on board, and then she could sort of turn on her, turn on her husband and get him to, to, to join in the rebellion too. I don't, I don't think that's the reason. Other people have given all kinds of other dumb reasons, but I don't think any of them are right. I think the reason that Satan went to Eve instead of Adam first is that he was not interested just in getting 
Adam as an individual person to do a little wrong thing. I think most of the time, most of us think of our sin as just a little mistake that we've made, just a tiny little thing, and what's the big deal, God? Fine, if, I, you know, if I've parked in the wrong place here, and that's a sin, fine, I'll pay the tax, I'll pay the penalty, whatever, but my sin is not a big deal, it's just a little mistake, it's a little, a little wrong thing, right? No big deal. Satan was not interested in just getting Adam to do a little wrong thing. What he wanted to do was overturn every authority structure that God had put into place in the world until God's own throne toppled. What he wanted was for Eve to convince her husband to rebel against God. See the dominoes falling? That's what he wanted. A declaration of war by the human beings against God from the bottom to the top. Why does Satan come as an animal? I mean, I mean, if Satan can, I mean, you know, the Bible says that Satan can show up as an angel of light. Clearly, he can show up as, a, as an animal, a snake. Why did he, why did he decide to come as, as an animal? I mean, if you're going to try to convince these humans to rebel against God, why not come as a human? Why not come as an angel, right? Why do you come as an animal? Well, the reason is because, again, Satan was not just interested in convincing the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, to do a little wrong thing. He wanted to overturn all the dominoes from the ground up. And so what he wants is for an animal to convince the woman to convince her husband to rebel against God. Why does he come as a snake? I mean, if you've decided you're going to come as an animal, why not come as something more impressive? Elephant, blue whale. Giraffe. No, he comes as a snake because symbolically speaking, you know, I know there's some science guys and girls in here who would say, no, there are microbes. But symbolically speaking, the snake is the lowest of the animals, right? Crawls on the ground. So what Satan wants is not even just for an animal to convince the woman to subvert the husband to rebel against God. He wants the lowest of the animals to convince the woman to subvert the husband to rebel against God. He wants every single authority structure that God has created in the world to be overturned like a bunch of dominoes until God's throne topples out of heaven. That's what Satan wants. And so he he goes to Eve and says, eat the fruit, break the law, take down the flag, declare war. And with Adam right there with her, they both decide, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's distrust God. Let's demand now what he's told us he'll give us later. Let's let's bow down and worship and join Satan rather than God. So when Adam pulls the fruit off and takes a bite of it, it's not just a little mistake. It's a declaration of war against his creator. You know that's what your sin is too? that's what your sin is? Your sin is not just a little mistake. When you sin against God, when you're apathetic to God, when you don't care what God said, when you, you know, when you, when you sort of roll your eyes and talk about how boring all this God stuff is, you know that's a declaration of war against Him. That's you saying, I don't, I don't want your authority over me. I don't want your crown over me. I don't want to obey your law. I don't have time for this. You're boring, and I don't care. You're declaring war against God. And the Bible says that the result of that, rightly, is that you're going to die. Now, why? Why is, why is the wages of sin death instead of something else? You ever think about that? 
I mean, you know, the, you know the Bible verse from Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. That which you earn for your rebellion against God is to die. Why? I mean, why didn't God say, in the day that you eat of this tree of the, 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 the fruit of the, the, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely you know, turn into a toad or something? Why not that? Why is it death? Well, it's because, it's because God is the source of all life, right? I mean, when he creates Adam, he, he breathes into Adam's lungs, who is, who is at that point just a, a pile of dirt, and Adam comes alive because, because God is the source of his life. When he makes Eve out of the rib, he, he gives life to Eve, and she comes alive. God is the source of all life, and if, if you're going to look into heaven to the source of your life and declare war against it, guess what's happening? You're cutting yourself off from the source of life, and therefore you die. That's why the wages of sin is death and not something else. That's exactly what happened. Now, I mean, Adam and Eve didn't die physically immediately. It's not like they just dropped dead. But their relationship with God was cut off. The source of their life was, was cut off, and they began to die. And then humanity began to die as sin got its, got its, its, its icy fingers into humanity's hearts. People began to die. Turn, look at Genesis chapter 5. I want to show you this. Genesis chapter 5. This is another one of those genealogies. You know, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. But this one's, this one's interesting. This one actually runs from Adam to Noah, who's the next big character in the story. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But, but look at the end. If your Bible's divided up into paragraphs, look at the end of every paragraph and how it ends. So verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Do you see the drumbeat that's running through that thing? It doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible. But here, it's trying to get across to you that sin causes death. The result of sin, the wages of sin is death, and he died, and he died. And he died, and he died. It runs like a drumbeat through all the generations of humanity. Sin's getting its grip on the, on the human heart in that genealogy. Now there's one guy in there, remember Enoch, where it doesn't say, and he died. It actually just says, and he was not, for God took him, right? And what's that about? Well, I think what that's doing is, is that's God's way of saying that despite the drumbeat of sin, despite the grip that sin and death seem to have on the human heart, I, God, can put a stop to that anytime I want. That's what he's saying with that. So see, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem, is that, that we as human beings have joined Satan in his rebellion against God, and that's the nature of our sin. Not just a little mistake, not just a tiny little thing. Your sin is rebellion against God that gets for you nothing but a sentence of, of death. You ever think of it like that? I, I think sometimes we just don't think enough of our sin. And so the idea that Jesus came and died for our sins and can save us from our sins, it just, it just hits us as very shallow because we just don't, we don't think enough of our sin. Anybody know what the word sin comes from? What is that word? Like, it comes from sports. Did you know that? It's actually an old English word that comes from, from uh, sporting. Anybody know what sport it comes from? What sport? Yep, it's archery. So it, and it actually just means to miss the mark. Right, so so the idea is that uh, in in ancient England or whatever, the king would hold an archery tournament. Right, you've probably seen this in, in a show like Robin Hood. Right, and they would the, all the archers would come and Maid Marian's up there, and 
you know, she's going to give her heart to, to whoever the archer is that wins. And they would set the targets up out in the field. And one of the archers would, would step up and he would aim the, aim the, the, the bow and arrow at the, at the target. And he would try really hard to, to hit the target because he wants to marry Maid Marian. And he would let the, let the arrow go and it would fly straight and true and just right over the top of the, of the target and fly out into the field. And the whole crowd would go, oh, he sinned. Meaning, he missed the mark. He missed the target. He was trying really hard, but he just missed it. And a lot of times when we hear that little Sunday school lesson about archery, we can think that that's what our sin is. That that's what, our, that that's what we are doing when we're sinning. We're trying really, really hard to hit the mark that God has set out for us out there because I, because I, I want to do good for you, God. And shoo, and oh, I missed. I just missed the mark. I was trying so hard, but I just missed it. I'm sorry, God. I really was trying, but I sinned. I missed. But you understand what Adam and Eve were doing in rebelling against God. And you realize that's not at all what the Bible says about your sin. When you sin, when you're apathetic about God, when you chase after after pleasure and fulfillment and meaning and purpose in your life in things other than God, when you break God's law, it's not that you're trying really hard to hit the target. That is not what you're doing. In fact, when you sin, what you're doing essentially is what Adam and Eve were doing, and that is pulling back the arrow, aiming at the target, and then looking back and saying, you know what, but I don't want to aim at the target at all. I'm aiming the arrow at the king because I want you to die. I don't want you in my life. I don't want your authority over me. I want you out. That's what your sin is. It's rebellion against the king, and you deserve to die. Because of it. So what's the, what's the solution? Well, the solution is what God was working out through the entire Bible. That he was going to send somebody who would win the battle that you lost. Who would not rebel against God, but who would obey God. Who would not join in Satan's war against God, but who would crush Satan. Which is exactly what Adam should have done. In the first place. You know what Adam should have done when the, when the serpent slithered up or whatever and said, hey, join my rebellion against God. And what Adam should have done is, is looked at him and said, no, and crushed his head. That's what he should have done. And so when God comes and finds Adam and Eve having sinned and begins to hand down these curses against them, he says actually to the serpent, I, this is Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send somebody one day who will do the thing to you that Adam should have done to you. He should have crushed your head. I'm going to send somebody who will eventually do that. Yeah, you're going to get his heel. The guy who comes, you're going to bite his heel. But he's going to crush your head, which is what Adam should have done in the first place. See, that's why it's so amazing that Jesus has now come. God has become a man and he has taken on the office of king so that he could stand in your place and be your champion. The one who fights the battle for you that you couldn't fight for yourself. You know what the word champion means? You ever, you ever heard that word? Of course you have. Champion is like the guy who wins the trophy, right? He holds it up and that's the, that's the champ. Okay, fine. That's, that's one kind of champion. That's not what the word champion means historically. The word champion historically means that, that somebody is fighting your battle for you. That's what it means. Who's going to be my champion? Like, this guy is going to fight my battle for me. He's my, he's my champion. That's what Jesus is for you. He picks up the sword that you dropped. He fights the battle that that you fought and lost. Only he wins it for you against Satan. 
But there's one more problem, right? I mean, the, the one problem that still remains is that even if Jesus fights your battle against Satan, the sentence of death for your sin is still there. And what are, what are we going to do with that? I mean, I mean, it's not as if you know, Jesus can just win your battle and then, and then the sin that you've already committed, the rebellion against God that you've already committed just sort of dissolves and disappears. That's not what happens. The sentence of death against sin has got to be handed down somehow. You know? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died over and over again. The sentence is going gonna, is gonna to be executed. But what God begins to teach his people is, look, that sentence of death doesn't have to be executed against the sinner. It can be executed against somebody who's standing in the sinner's place. God taught his people that in a lot of ways. One of them was uh, uh, at the Passover. You know the story of the Passover? In Exodus chapter 12, uh, uh, you probably know the story of of the, the people of Israel being in slavery to Egypt, most powerful country on the face of the earth at the time. And they had taken the, the people of Israel captive and they, they had them in slavery and they were oppressing them and mistreating them in all kinds of ways. And God decides, I'm going to now uh, uh, save my people from slavery in Egypt. And the way he does it is that he sends 10, what? Plagues. What does the word plague mean? It doesn't mean disease. We use it like that now, right? The black plague, meaning the black, the black disease, right? But that's not what it means. The word plague literally means a blow, a hit, a punch, so when the Bible talks about, about uh, God sending ten plagues against the nation of Egypt and against Pharaoh, what he means, what the Bible means, is that God is sending ten punches against Pharaoh. Just one right after the other. He's just punching Pharaoh in the nose ten times, right? And essentially, it's a battle of gods because the people of Egypt thought that their Pharaoh was a god and they had all these other gods of Egypt. And with each one of the plagues, you can do this you can study this for yourself, but with each one of the plagues, God is essentially punching another god of Egypt in the nose. Bam, 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 bam. You know, so at one point, there's a, you know, there's a god that's in the shape of a frog, right, uh, it, for, for Egypt. And this frog goddess was supposed to keep all the frogs of the Nile at bay from, from coming out, right? So, so she stands guard against the, against the frogs of the Nile so that they won't come out. Well, what happens in one of the plagues? God, God essentially you know, punches that fake God in the nose and, and the frogs come out, of the, come out of the river and overwhelm the whole nation of, of Egypt, right? So God has defeated this froggy-shaped God. There's another one that's, a, you know, sort of in the, in the shape of a, a, a cow and this cow is supposed to protect all the livestock of Egypt but then there's this plague that, where the cows die, right? That God has been defeated. Well, the very last God of, uh, uh, of Egypt is the God of, of death, Anubis, you've probably seen him, right? He's, he's in the shape of a dog, and he's, he's this black dog that is the god of death. And so in, in the last plague, God says, I'm going to defeat Anubis. The dog is not going to bark against my people. And so he tells his people, look, here's what's going to happen. On this one particular night, I'm, I'm taking out Anubis. Anubis is not the god that's in charge of death. I am. And so on this one particular night, I'm going to send the angel of death all throughout the land of, of Egypt. And in every household, the firstborn son and daughter and all the firstborn animals are going to die on one particular night. And there's going to be great sadness throughout the nation of, of Egypt. So raise your hand if you're like me, if you're a firstborn. Raise it up high. Let yourself be. You'd all be dead on that night. One night, you'd all die just like that. Now, now, the shocking thing about that to the people of Israel, the really shocking thing about it, is that for every one of the other plagues, 
the troubles had happened in the land of the Egyptians, but not in the land of the Israelites. So there were literally these, these villages that the Israelites were settled in by the Egyptians. And for example, like a, a plague of hail that was falling on all the crops of Egypt. Like an Israelite could literally walk to the border of the village like this and watch the hail fall over there, but not over here. Right? I mean, that, that was part of what God was teaching his, his people and Egypt too, is that this is my special people and the hail is going to fall on them and not on my people, right? The thing about the 10th plague though, is that God said, I'm going to send the angel of death through your villages too. It would have been terrifying. He said, your firstborn are going to die too. Unless you follow my instructions very carefully. What I want you to do is go out, every family, go out into your fields and find a lamb. I don't want it to have any blemish, no broken legs, no spots on the fur, uh, on the wool, no, no nothing. No blemishes at all. It's got to be a perfect little lamb. You bring the lamb back to your house and you kill it. And you take some of the blood of the lamb and you put it on the door frame of your, of your house with a, a certain plant that would hold a lot of blood, like, like a paintbrush, right? Put it on the door of your, of your house. And then all of you go in with the dead lamb into your house and you roast the lamb and you eat it. And when the angel of death comes through your village, if he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over your house and your firstborn will not die. That's where they got the name Passover, right? The angel of death will pass over. Now you got to understand what that meant. Because, to, because you, you guys don't have to like, for example, kill your own hamburgers. You go into the store and it's nicely packaged, wrapped, maybe in a box and you, know, you pull it out, it's a piece of meat, put it on the grill, you know, fire it up, you got a hamburger. You don't ever have to see anything really die in order for your food to be, uh, to be prepared. But to kill a lamb was not a nice, clean sort of butcher shop thing. And what would happen is that the father would have to, would have to go out into the field and he would have to pick out the lamb that was, that was going to die. And he would pick the lamb up and, and put it over his shoulder, usually and hold, the, hold the feet right here and carry the lamb back to the house. And then, then he would gather the entire family around him, right? So you've got his wife over here and maybe, maybe a couple of younger kids here. And then, and then you'd have the oldest son maybe over here, you know whatever his name was, Joshua, very common Jewish name. This little Joshua, maybe he's 11 years old. You know, the other kids are four, five, six, whatever. Joshua's 11. Maybe Joshua went out into the field with his father and picked out the lamb that was, that was going to be killed. And then, and, and then you got to understand that it, it's not a nice thing. It's not like they just take some, some ether on a cloth and put it over the lamb's nose and, and the lamb just kind of falls asleep. That's not how this thing works. The father would take the lamb off of his shoulders and set him on the ground and then he would kneel down with the lamb and put his arm around the lamb's chest right here, right, with, the, with, with his neck sticking up. And then he would take a, a, a flint knife, which means a rock that's been sharpened down just a little bit, not much. It's not really sharp like a knife. It's a rock that's got a jagged edge. And he would take the rock and stick it into the lamb's neck and then jerk it across the lamb's neck with the family standing all around. And then he would, and, and, and you gotta, you've got to understand too, the blood doesn't just like nicely, cleanly run down into the wool of, of the lamb. The heart of this lamb is still beating. And so the blood is spraying everywhere, all over the family. It's spraying everywhere. And the father would, would stand up after the, the job is done and the lamb would stagger around inside the circle where the family is gathered around spraying blood everywhere. And then it would fall over and die. And as the lamb died on that particular night... Every eye in the family would have turned to look at little Joshua and they would have realized this lamb is dying 
tonight so that Joshua doesn't have to. They put the blood on the doorpost and maybe the father would put his arm around little Joshua and say, come on, let's go. They'd walk into the house and shut the door and hide for the night under the blood of the lamb. You see what God was showing his people there? Somebody's got to die. You Israelites are just as guilty of rebelling against me as the Egyptians are. Somebody's got to die. But it doesn't have to be you. It can be somebody else who dies for you. There's another place where God showed his people something very similar, but still different. Turn, Turn to Exodus 18. This is just a few weeks later. Pharaoh finally lets the people of Israel go and they're wandering around in the, in the wilderness and they eventually come to this place. Exodus uh, 17. They eventually come to this place called Rephidim and something just extraordinary happens. Look, look with me at Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin. That's Sin, not sin. It's not talking about sin. It's just a name. Wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at this place called Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why are you quarreling with me and why do you test the Lord? Now you've got to understand that. It's important to the story. Moses asks two questions there. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Those are the same questions. Because when the people are fighting with Moses and saying, give us water to drink, essentially what they're doing is saying to the Lord, give us water to drink. Because Moses is the spokesman for the Lord, right? He he speaks for God to the people. And so they can't get at God. And so they're going to get at Moses and say, Moses, why have you brought us out here to die and not give us water? Give us water. And what they're really saying is speaking to the guy behind Moses named God, you give us water. You've done us wrong. So Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? In other words, why are you testing the Lord? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses, that is the Lord. They grumbled against God and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses turns around and cries to the Lord, what am I going to do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, which means they're ready to stone you, God. They can't get at you, so they're going to stone me since I'm your spokesman. What am I supposed to do? And you see what's happening here? The people of Israel are mad at God. They can't get at him, so they're mad at Moses. And they're saying, look, we are charging you, God, with murder. You brought us out here to kill us. You murdered us. And, and, and so, so if, if, if you're found guilty on this charge of murder, we're going to stone you because that's the sentence of death. If you murder somebody, you get stoned for it. We can't get to you, so we're going to stone Moses in your place. But that's what they're doing. So Moses turns around and says, what am I supposed to do? Look what happens in verse 5. So the Lord said to Moses, here's what you do. Pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So now, now basically what God is saying there is, you want a trial? Okay, let's have a trial. And all those details that are stacked up there, you gather the whole people together and pass before them and bring all the elders, that is the judges of the nation of Israel, and we're going to judge this case. We're going to find out which one of us, me or the people, deserve to die. We're going to have a trial. You want a trial? Let's have a trial. And so they do. Gathers the whole, the whole people together and the elders come by and 
And the question is, who's going to be guilty in this thing? I mean, is it going to be God who's guilty? No, God's been unfailingly faithful to his people. He rescued him from slavery in Egypt. He gave him manna. He gave him quail. He gave him water. Just over and over again, he's been faithful to his people. They're the ones who are guilty of complaining constantly that they're not happy with what God has done for them. And then there's that little detail of bring the staff with which you struck the Nile, which is hugely ominous because do you know what that staff was used for every time it was used? That staff was a staff of judgment, and it was used to kill. Every time Moses used it, it was used to judge and to kill. So Moses would walk into, the, into Egypt, and he took the staff, and he struck the waters of the Nile River with it, and what happens to the Nile? It turns to blood. It's judgment, and people die because the water turns to blood. Another time, he holds out the staff over the, over the Red Sea, and what happens? The Red Sea splits, but then he holds it out again once the people of Israel have come through, and the whole Red Sea comes crashing down in judgment, and all the armies of Egypt die. It's a staff of judgment and when the people see that staff coming as Moses walks in front of them they know somebody's about to get hit with the rod of judgment and somebody is about to die who's it going to be God or the people God or the people it's gonna be the people God's having a trial and it's the people that the staff is going to fall on it's ominous but then look at verse six because this extraordinary thing happens God says there in verse six behold I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. It's just shocking, right? I mean, I mean, you're having this trial, and what's going on here? And Moses uh, takes, the, takes the, the rod, and he, he hits the rock, and water comes out, and the people have plenty to drink. And it just looks like God has just done this little, you know, slightly impressive miracle of bringing water out of a, out of a rock, and the people have something to drink. But, but, but did you notice the, the really crucial detail in the whole thing? When Moses strikes the rock, In verse 6, where is God? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock. In other words, you shall strike me. It's my my people who deserve to have the rod strike them, but I'm going to take it on myself. And the result is that life comes out. You see what God was teaching his people? He was teaching his people, you deserve to die for your rebellion against me. That's the wages of sin. But I'm going to take that punishment on myself in your place. So when Jesus, the God who became man, the king who would fight the battle force. When he defeats Satan, there's still one problem, and that is the sentence of death still hangs over us. And now, Jesus, to complete his work, is going to do what God promised. He's going to die in our place so that we don't have to. You ever wonder why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because you deserve to be forsaken for your sin. That's what you deserve. You deserve to be for God to turn his back on you and never look at you again except to turn back with fire in his eyes and pour out his wrath on you for eternity. That's what you deserve for your sin. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. Let me explain to you, as simply as I know how, what happens between a Christian and Jesus as Jesus is dying on the cross. See, see you have been, have been working all your life to sort of amass a record of life, Right? And, and at the end of your life, God is going to judge that record. He's going to look at it and say, you know, on the basis of that record, I'm either going to declare you righteous or I'm going to declare you guilty. 
on the basis of that record. The trouble is, the only record that you've been amassing to show God at the end of your life is one of rebellion against Him. Apathy about Him. Disobedience of His law. Just all kinds of, of sin and wrongdoing and, and, and rebellion. That's what you've been amassing. And when you stand before Him one day and hold that record up to God, you know what He's going to say? Not, I declare you righteous, but I declare you to be a rebel against Me. And you know what happens to rebels? They die. Well, through... Through his entire life, Jesus, too, was amassing a record. Only you know what his record was? It was, not, it was not sin and rebellion. His record was perfect righteousness in everything. Every word that he said, everything that he did, every thought that he had, everything that motivated him, it was a perfect record of life. And when, when, when you become a Christian, there's this amazing thing that happens between you and Jesus. This exchange that takes place of the records of life between you and Jesus. See, your record of sin and rebellion and, and deserving of death and all the rest of it, that thing is transferred. The Bible uses words like credited or imputed. Fancy theological word, but it just means like counted. Your record gets given, credited, imputed to Jesus, and he dies for it. God looks at your record on the shoulders of Jesus, and Jesus dies because of that record. God looks at the cross, and he sees a rebel. He sees your record of rebellion and Jesus dies for that record. But at the same time, what happens is that Jesus' perfect record of obedience to God, perfect record of life, gets transferred over, credited or imputed to you and now God looks at that and says, on the basis of that, I declare you righteous. I declare you to be saved. See, that's why when you get to heaven, you know, you've ever heard the question, when you get to heaven and stand before God, if God asks you why, you should, why he should save you, what are you going to say to him? You ever heard that question? Well, that, that's why if you're, if you're a Christian, you're, you're not going to like start pulling stuff out of your pockets, you know, and saying, well, God, I, I, you know, I went to church and I wasn't as bad as my friend and, you know, I never killed anybody and, you know, this and this and that and, you know, I, I, I raised a good family and had a good job, did some good things for people. Maybe you even say, I changed the world somehow in my career. Look at, look at all this stuff, God. If you're a Christian, you're not going to pull all that stuff out because you're going to recognize that all of it's worthless. None of it gets you a declaration of righteousness from God. It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? If you're a Christian, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say, God, I got, I got nothing. I've got nothing. I've got no reason in my entire life for you to declare me righteous. None at all. But, but he does. He, he does. Jesus does. Jesus does. So, so count, count me righteous, not because of anything that I've done, but count me righteous because of what Jesus did for me. He, he lived the life. He, he amassed the record of life that I should have amassed, that you wanted me to amass. I didn't do it. He did it for me. And not only that, but the sentence of death that I deserve for my sins, he exhausted it. He took it in himself and he died for me. So, so on account of him, declare me righteous. I mean, you know, you know when you stand before God, if you're a Christian, and, and if Satan is there accusing you of sin in your life, well, she did this, and he did that, and this, and this, and this, and this. Jesus is not going to step in and defend you and say, you know what, that, that, that's kind of that's true. Actually, that one's not true. And the circumstances around that were so complicated that I think we should let her off the hook on, on that sin. And yeah, that was a... God, just that, that one right there, that was just, she was just going through such a hard time in life, so can't we cut her a break on that one? That's not what the Bible means when it says Jesus defends you at the last day. 
Satan's going to be right about everything he says about you. Every accusation he makes is going to be correct. You did it all. And Jesus from the throne is going to say, Father, he's right. All of that is true. All of this sin in every detail happens. But may it please the court to remember that I have already died for these sins. There's no more penalty required. And not only that, but this person is so mine that I would ask the court, I would ask you, Father, to let the record of my life stand in the place of theirs and declare him, declare her righteous because of me. And that's when the Father will nod yes and look at his son with all the love in the universe and say yes because of you I declare him her to be righteous you know what faith is Christians talk a lot about faith 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 is not believing in something ridiculous when you don't have any evidence for it that's not what faith is faith is to rely on something that is reliable and what I'm trying to convince you of today is that Jesus is reliable. You can, you can size him up, right? Just like a wall. You can look at it and say, I really think that I can rely on that wall not to let the ceiling fall in on me. You size him up. You say, yes, I, I really do think that Jesus is who he says he is. I really do think that Jesus can save sinners like me, just like he says uh, that he can. And, and I'm going to 100% trust in him, rely on him to do it because I know I can't do it for myself. That's what it means to have faith. Maybe some of you this morning need to, need to do that, like today. Maybe you weren't even like coming into this, this whole thing this morning thinking that you know, there was any problem there, but you're realizing all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I've never really understood what Jesus did. I thought it was just about, about, about living according to the rules and that at the end, God would look at my living according to the rules and maybe I'll have more good stuff than bad stuff and he'll declare me to be righteous and you're suddenly realizing that's never going to work. If I'm ever going to be saved, it's going to be because of what Jesus did for me 100%. And so I need to quit relying on my own self and start relying on Jesus 100%. There may be some of you that are realizing that this morning. And if so, awesome. That's great. Let, let, let your heart, if that's, if that's you, let, let your heart go ahead and topple over into faith. I mean, you can tell when you begin to rely on somebody. Right? You can tell when you begin to trust somebody. Let your heart topple over into faith and trust of Jesus. And finally say, yeah, I'm, I'm relying on him. I am a Christian. I hope you'll do that this morning because Jesus, the king, the God who became man, the substitute, the Passover lamb, he's worthy of that kind of trust. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done to save us, even when you didn't have to. Lord, when we rebelled against your Father, you, you, you could have simply said, let, let, let them die. That's what they deserve for their sins. They've rebelled against the high King of Heaven and they deserve to die as rebels. But because of your love for us, Lord, you, you became human and you took on the office of King so that you could fight our battles for us. You could represent us and win where we had failed. But you didn't, you didn't even just defeat our enemy Satan and crush his head. You, 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 you took the sentence of death that we deserved and you exhausted it in your own self. And then you rose again from the dead. So that if we're united to you by faith, if we embrace you by faith, if we're connected to you like a branch is connected to a vine, then your resurrection life will cause us to rise to newness of life too. 
Lord, we thank you for that great blessing that out of death you have brought life to us. Out of broken fellowship with God, you've brought renewed fellowship with God. Out of being cast out of God's presence, you have made us sons and daughters of God. Thank you for the work you did for us as our king and our representative and our substitute and our champion. Lord, we pray all of these things in your name and always, always to your glory. Amen.